This is Andrew Hall. You're listening to Dead Hand Radio. My guest for this episode is J.J. Shirty, a post-apocalyptic writer and creator of the Post-Apocalyptic Writing Guide. I first met J.J. on Twitter, where we've exchanged many tweets about the apocalypse, writing, gaming, and photography, and other interesting topics. A little over a year ago, I interviewed J.J. for my blog, and now that I have a podcast, I thought he would be an interesting guest to have on. During our conversation, we catch up on life, talk about the post-apocalyptic genre, and some of the current events going on in Asia, where he lives. I had a great time talking with JJ, and I'm glad he agreed to come on the show. So, how you doing, JJ? Welcome to Dead Hand Radio. I'm, I'm, I'm doing good, mate. Yeah. Pretty good day here. Went out and got some breakfast. Yeah. I'm on holiday at the moment, so things are pretty slow. I'm enjoying it. That's nice. Yeah, it's always have, good to have a break. Mm. So you're living in Taiwan. You're Australian living in Taiwan. Uh, yes. How long have you been in Taiwan? I've been in Taiwan since July of 2018. So just over two years now. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and we first connected on Twitter about a little over a year ago, right? Mm, mm. Um, and that was because of a book that you had written. Um, remind me the name of it. Was it the Was it Days Too Dark or the Post Apocalyptic Writing Guide? That's the one. Yeah, yeah. No, it's all good. It's I all read good. the book too, and uh, that's what prompted me to reach out and and uh, invite you to do the interview on my blog. Nice. Okay, cool. The first interview that we did, the written interview. Yeah, okay. Um, which you uh, you shared some quite a few details about your creative experience, and uh, I would encourage anybody that wants to get more of your background to go check out that one. And you also appeared on on a uh, a mutual friends podcast from the waste with evan oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? yeah yeah that was good i heard that uh podcast too and that was pretty good mm. so anybody that's listening to this should also check out that one for sure um <clears throat> so since the last time we talked and right now uh quite a quite a few things have changed within the world but um how about you personally your little piece of the world what uh what's transpired in the last uh, year and a half or so at least the six months since this pandemic has has gone down what's uh, what's been going on with you uh taiwan has actually been relatively unscathed by this whole covid thing like i'm, I'm just sitting here like watching the world unravel and I've been going to work every day. And well, that's what I mean. Like, I'm on holiday now. Like, this is the first break I've had in two years. So, like, people just show, people have been wearing masks here. Because I think Taiwan was one of the first sort of nations to sort of sound the alarm about this. And so they, they made everyone start wearing masks, like, way back in February. And so... Yeah, it was it was nothing here. That's good. Uh, well, and different parts of Asia have experienced um, not pandemics, but outbreaks. Mm. 
I don't know if um, you were around when the H1N1 virus um, was uh, spreading through Asia, uh, but that was that one was pretty deadly. I think in the I don't know five ten years ago, maybe maybe it was only five years ago. But you you probably weren't there at that time. Do you remember that? I remember it. I wasn't here for it though. I, yeah, that was because there's been like two big ones, like the 2002, 2003. Mm-hmm. That was swine flu, and then there was bird flu. Right, right. Yeah. So they've had their share of these uh, these outbreaks, and mm. you know people are are a lot more. Um, I trying to think of a word, but they're um, not really programmed. They're just accustomed to responding to these type of outbreaks and they yeah. do what they need to do to, to minimize the spread of it. Yeah. We'll see. Um, it's a very different like work culture here as well. Like if you see someone at work and they're wearing a mask, like normally not with COVID, but if they're wearing a mask, it's because they're sick, but they don't want to get other people sick, but they still want to work. So they'll still show up to work if they're sick. They'll just sort of like quarantine themselves and just keep working. And so there's sort of this mentality that like you just do it and just keep going. Right. And so, yeah, like I've I've been watching like this whole mask thing has just been interesting from like being here and seeing what's happened back in Australia, in America, in England. And yeah, it's just, on like a societal level, it's just a completely different mindset. Yeah. And it is, uh, it is interesting to see a different take on it from a different culture. And you coming out of Australia, have you been to other parts of the world besides Australia? Uh, yeah, yeah. I've traveled around a little. Yeah. So you've seen yeah, like different cultures and how they, how they interact with one another and respond to different types of situations. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the only sort of extreme event, I guess I could say, like I was in Hawaii when the, um, the London train bombing happened in 2005. And I saw like cop cars, like screaming down the road and like cops are jumping out and standing on the corners. And I'm like, what the hell's going on? And like, there's a terrorist attack I'm like here I'm like no it's in, in London I was like oh so what are the cops here for like it was just such like an extreme reaction I thought like something must be going on here but no so like that's that's the only real sort of like you know big event that I've sort of seen from another culture but yeah they just do things differently like I know like everyone's like you don't you don't really appreciate it until you see it like everyone here is just very polite, very calm, great with outsiders. They're just super friendly. But yeah, it's a, it's very very different. That's interesting. And um, what uh, what was the catalyst for you to leave Australia? And why did you move to Taiwan? <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I was in I was in training for the, the military, and. Um, in Australia, if you want to become like an officer, they'll make you do like six months like community service just to sort of show that, you know, you're like, you know, you're willing to like serve the people and all that. 
and I was doing like working with the rural fire brigade and I was at the gym and I was just training a lot at the gym and actually um I had I suffered like a herniated disc doing like improper form at, at the um on like a deadlift or something and so I actually um was off work for two months with bung spine and so yeah the military was like yeah thanks but no thanks you're, you're sort of done and so I had to look for another career and so yeah I was like well teaching doesn't require a lot you know of like physical activity and stuff so I just did a T-cell course and just came to Taiwan so it was sort of like one of those yep sorry uh, I was just gonna say why um, what what was the what was your interest in Taiwan why not somewhere else um, I've been to Japan before and their work week is just pure insanity and that's a bit much to, for me and like the commute every day is kind of hectic and then I saw it was like there was job offerings for like China and Taiwan and I was like well you know that's that's not a hard choice there <laughs> so I'll just go check out Taiwan and like I, I didn't really know much about it until I got here and it's like just an amazing place so yeah it's, it's, been, it's been a real eye-opener okay that's good that's a that's a a nice little um introduction to your background and uh okay aside then the besides the the education you went to university and got a degree what was your degree in um i did a bachelor of arts majoring in creative writing minors in english and history and um yeah, I actually, I was the first student at my university to graduate without knowing it. So that that's always my call to fame. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a, yeah, they sent me my degree in the mail. That's pretty good. Uh, yeah. So you, um, do you, what year did you graduate? Oh, God, that was um, 2011. I've sort of been kicking around since then, yeah. Okay. And um, you were born right at the tail end of the cold war. And since this is a cold war podcast, I'd like to talk about that period a little bit, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. Um, personally, my only real memory of the cold war, cause I was born in 85 and my only real memory is like this ridiculous anecdote that I had to put in like a story. Like, Mum sort of freaked out one morning and she was like, turn the television on. So I ran and turned the television on. And like, it was when the Berlin Wall was coming down. And like, mum's freaking out and saying like, a war is coming. And I, um, because I was like four at the time, I like, I misheard her. And I thought she said like, a wall is coming. And like I had this image in my mind of like a, a self-building wall just coming across the world. And I was like, ah, I freaked out, ran down the road, got my friend and we got to like pickaxes and hammers and stuff. And we hit under the house. Yeah, it was, it was pretty stupid. <laughs> but that's, that's my personal experience. That's a, that's a perfect anecdote. Um, so you, you heard your mom say that a wall is coming when the wall was actually yeah. coming down. What she actually yeah. said was, the, a war is coming? 
Yeah, yeah. So she thought that it was going to be the start of World War Three right then and there. Yeah, it, yeah. Very interesting. That is a uh, that's a very different take on it than what I remember. I was in my teens. I think I had just graduated high school. Oh wait, no, this was eighty nine. Uh, eighty nine. Yeah. Um, oh, I was already I was already uh, in the military. I was in the Air Force at that time, just about ready to get out. Um, and then, um, yeah, I, I was not as aware of global events as I am right now. Mm. I remember the wall coming down. I remember it being a big deal. I don't remember worrying about, you know, the start of world war three at that time, uh, Mm. because, uh, my wife was pregnant. My, um, daughter was about to be born and I was worried about finding work because I had just gotten out of the military. So, you know, my priorities were completely different at that time. Um, but, uh, you know, fast forward years later and I, you know, I know that part of history very well from a historical standpoint, which I'm sure you do too. You probably studied that period in in school as you were growing up a little bit australia is australia is weird like we're so far removed from like everything else like just like in terms of like literal distance and often involvement that like our sort of like wedge of history that we focus on is just strange like i remember back in primary school we were still, they still taught us like English history. You mean, and you like, mean the British England? Yeah. Yeah. British, like UK, British history. UK history. UK oh, history. Okay, yeah. gotcha. and, uh, so even in grade one, I was like, why am I learning about a different country? But then, yeah, it was sort of like, you know, and this is Australian history. And it's like, okay. You know, so it's often quite isolated. So yeah, Cold War not a big involvement but then again my dad was american so i've got a, a bit so i've got just fragments of it so yeah th- this will be an interesting chat i'm sure i'll learn a lot as well well uh you know i'm i'm really interested in hearing uh, a little bit more about your experience you know during those final days of the cold war and then as a teenager growing up in kind of the wake of the aftermath of the cold war um yeah now you said australia is is quite isolated at least in your experience and the the um the school system didn't really teach a lot but family friends relatives distant relatives any anybody talk about what was going on in europe at that time my mom was pretty well traveled so she you know she'd been around a lot of different places. I remember like what, one of her big things is that she was in Israel and she had to run into a bomb shelter and she was getting bombed on. And I was like, well, that's kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. Like this, but yeah. Um, again, dad was American again, well-traveled. So sort of worldly parents. And so they often, you know, spoke about big events that were a bit beyond the scope of a kid. But, um, yeah, the Cold War, 
didn't really factor into a lot in Australia. Like, well, actually, okay, here's something else. Again, because my dad was American, and like my mom's best friend, she married a Russian, and so like my friends growing up were half Russian, like I'm half American, and so the dads, the two families, sort of had this weird relationship where we're like we're both in Australia, but we're both from these you know conflicting countries, and just like they were friends, but it was a very sort of interesting relationship. They they argued a lot. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, so I'm sure, different yeah. viewpoints and different political perspectives. Also, different parts of the world. Yeah. You see things from oh. from different uh, different perspectives. Yeah, very much. It's understandable, so. but it did give you. Uh, well, hopefully, it gave you a broader scope of world views. And and um, I mean, do do you do you have a a deep interest in uh, world affairs now? Now that you're older. Yeah, and it's it's sort of grown since I've come to Taiwan because like someone actually wrote a paper on this, which I'm actually glad I read through it and it was very interesting. There's actually a, a stereotypical individual that will come and like teach English overseas because they're typically the more like left leaning individual who has like a liberal arts or humanities you know, degree because finding work in that sort of field is much more difficult than finding, you know, like STEM or something like that. And so you get like a sort of, again, stereotypical individual who's overseas. And when I came here, like I didn't realize like just how passionately political a lot of people, especially from the West are. And training with a bunch of people from like the Western world all stuck together in a hotel for a week. It got really interesting. <laughs> like there was some just like, yeah, I've met some people here. Like d don't get me wrong. The locals are great, but some of the people that have come here, well, <laughs> it's uh yeah. And there, there's an interesting bag. When you say from the West, are you talking primarily so, United States or Canada? Typically, if they they want English like native speakers, so it'll be like Australia, New Zealand, the UK, America, Canada, South Africa. <clears throat> so yeah, any native speakers. There's a few others, but um, yeah, native speaking sort of Western countries is what they look for. Yeah, and you do have. I mean, even in the United States alone, you have a varied. Uh, pool of different opinions different ideals and you have some very polarizing uh opinions um yeah so yeah and you go outside of the united states and it seems that those opinions extend beyond the borders of the u.s and you have people all over the world that are siding with one uh, side of or uh, of opinion within the U.S. or the other side. And it's really strange to me being in the U.S. to hear people like in the U.K. talking about politics in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. And and so See, vehemently like adamant about their views about what's going on in the U.S. That kind of blows me away. Well, well see, this is the thing like, 
I've experienced that here as well. Like someone's just ranting and raving about Trump and I'm like, you're Canadian. What do you care? Exactly. Like, just, he's not your prime president. They got a prime minister like us. Anyway. Yeah. But I think like America is, it's still like king of the world. So anything that sort of like happens in America, it, it's going to affect the world. And especially so for like the West, like, it's sort of interesting being like from Australia because like, yeah, like we're, we're sort of like that multicultural Western country, but it's like America is like America's the West. America's the, you know, the multicultural King of the world sort of thing. So you're sort of like, we're like the grubby little brother, you know, the feral kid. And you guys are like the big brother Good reference. Yeah. <laughs> Way to bring it back to the post-apocalyptic ideas. <laughs> yeah. 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 But um, we'll get to that too, by the way. Uh, Cause I, uh, yeah, cool. this is not a political show. I don't want to really get into politics. Uh, oh yeah. Other than yeah. we are going to talk a little bit about Taiwan and China and U S uh, how, yeah. how um, we'll, we'll get to that in just a, just a few couple of minutes because um, I, I've talked to several people now who have referenced or who have um, said that they believe that the Cold War never really ended and we're still in the Cold War. And my view on it is a little bit different than, than the people that I've talked to because I feel like the Cold War did end with the collapse of the Soviet Union and that was a firm break. The West won. The Soviet Union was no longer in existence. It was akin to the defeat of the Nazis um, without the bloodshed, without the, the massive, you know, global conflagration. That's a hard word to say. <laughs> Conflagration. Conflagration. Conflagration is what I was going for. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. You know, minus minus the the massive amount of casualties, human casualties. Um, you know that 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 conflict was over; it was done, and mm. both sides walked away. And the, the Soviet Union uh, basically splintered into multiple different nations, and Russia emerged out of that. And but it was no longer a superpower for for years. Um, but, um, post nine 11 in 2001, you have the rise of China as a world power. And as China's strength grew and eventually became a threat to, uh, the U S is basically their sole reign as the, the, key superpower in the world uh this created a second uh a second cold a cold war uh and that's kind of what we're in the midst of right now and that's that's just my observation that's the way i see it um but we're basically in cold war 2.0 yeah okay okay and it's getting it seems to be heating up i mean the, the article that uh, i read in um the the Asian Review, which is a, a local newspaper over there, 
it's an op-ed um, by a former admiral of the U.S. Navy, um, James Stavridis. I, I can't pronounce his last name, but anyway, it's called <clears throat> it's called "What Would Happen If the U.S. Recognized Taiwan," and that should pique anybody's interest right there because, first of all, Taiwan is not recognized as a sovereign nation. It's still considered part of China, um, which is a, a little bit of a surprise to me because I thought Taiwan was, you know, a, it, they have their own president. Why would they be a territory of China? Do you, do you have an answer to that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so um, basically sort of around World War II, I, I don't know the exact dates, but like after World War II, the, um, the communists were running amok in like mainland China and they ran, the communists actually won the war and the current government in power sort of fled back to the island Taiwan. And... Um, yeah, it's sort of funny. I actually went to like the, the palace museum on Monday and while they were sort of pulling back and fleeing, they just grabbed everything of value, like historical artifacts, paintings, murals, pots, pans, everything. And they just took everything. And so the government and like a lot of like people fled back to um Taiwan and they never sort of, Technically, the, I don't think the war ever actually was like officially ended. Like they never surrendered, nothing. But like the communists couldn't take them. Like getting to Taiwan, they couldn't manage to take it. So they sort of just let them stay here. And they're like, okay, you're you're ours, but we don't really control you. But we're just going to leave you alone. But you're ours. And so Taiwan was like, no, no, we're our own thing. And, but they sort of like, they can't fully separate themselves because then they'll get invaded, but they don't want to go and join China either. And so they sort of like, while China was going through like the whole great leap forward, you know, communism is awesome period. Like Taiwan was under martial law for a real long time. And, you know, they were going through their own struggles and um, yeah, they sort of just sat on the sidelines and the main reason they're not recognized is because it's sort of like um, America with Cuba after that conflict. It was sort of like China says, like, if you recognize them, you know, we can, we'll just stop dealing with you. So do you want to be our trading partner or do you want to be Taiwan's trading partner? Or like, we'll just, we'll just start throwing punches. Like they're ours, stay out of our internal affairs. So basically they just, act as if Taiwan is already theirs and anyone who disagrees with them makes them angry. And that's sort of been how they just handle the situation. Sort of like what's going on with Hong Kong recently. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, yeah, that's a, another, I think another key area of conflict that's starting to heat up and China just seems to be stretching its, uh, stretching its reach, uh, across the, the world. I mean, they're, they're making moves and pretty aggressive moves in South America, parts of Africa, 
um, besides Taiwan and Hong Kong, there's, um, there's other areas of Asia that they're trying to claim as their own. Yeah. Like the whole South China Sea. Yeah. Um, I know there's a big issue in Australia at the moment. Like they were buying up a lot of the real estate. They were influencing um politicians. And so Australia has been pushing back against that now and it's causing issues. Like there's been a lot of trade breakdown and, um, yeah, they're, not, they're not really trying to make friends at the moment. It's, uh, it's, it's interesting. And especially with, with what's going on with India as well. Oh, India and China. Yeah. They've got a shared border. Right. And, um, yeah, they had a little, a little conflict on the border not too long ago. I, I read something about that. Yeah, ended up in, uh, I think a, a handful of casualties, few people injured, and and one or two deaths. Oh, I think it was like ten Indians died, and like China hasn't released the number, but I think it was like a U.S. agency sort of estimated it to be like thirty-five or something. I don't know how they would have come to that number, but. That's the sort of thing with like um, China, like just being in Taiwan, like, again, they've got a very, very different way of doing things. Like they're more, they're more about like the face, like this, it's, it's very hard to explain. Like I've been here for two years and I'm like, I'm sort of getting to understand it, but it's like, just be super respectful to everyone and just make everyone look good and don't get angry. But the thing is to do that, you've often got to like, massage the truth a little bit so like with this covid thing that's happened are you familiar with like the numbers of it oh yeah like the number yeah how so like inflated the numbers are in the in the the u.s the numbers are allegedly really overinflated like yeah i think it was like last i checked it was like two hundred thousand or something but then yeah there's like you know anyone who had it when they died is you know counted as having died from it to boost the numbers for funding and all that. But then like you see like China and they're like, yeah, we've had like 8,000 dead or something. And they're suppressing the numbers. Yeah. It's like, well, we all know you're lying, but see, they're okay with that because that like to them, it's like, we've had 8,000 dead We're we're doing great. And like, that's the sort of thing with like this whole face thing. Like you can lie or massage the truth and no one will sort of like acknowledge it. Like everyone knows you're lying, but it makes everyone sort of look good. So everyone just goes along with it because they want the sort of like harmonious social relationship. And so you sort of see them doing that on like the world stage as well. Well, like they're just blatantly lying about stuff. Yeah. And like with so like, yeah, it's, uh, it's akin to a bully who walks around threatening everybody, keeping them in line. And everybody goes along with what he says because they're afraid of getting punched. Yeah. Yeah. And nobody really wants to stand up to and confront that bully. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. It's interesting being in Taiwan because it feels like you're the piece of meat stuck between like two dogs and like they're going to fight over you and like it's like any sort of like physical conflict will happen here yes because like taiwan is sort of like for the pacific ocean taiwan would be a good buffer for china it's like with tibet like they don't need tibet 
you know, it's its own, its own region, its own people, but they need it because it's a barrier to the countries on the other side yeah. and it keeps them safe. That's the same thing that um, ended in a stalemate in Korea. That's the same reason Korea ended in a stalemate between North and South Korea. They were, yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the U.S. was making strong headway and they almost ended the war. But when they got to the border of China, China got involved and sent in troops. And they sent in um, so many troops that it just overwhelmed the U.S. and the South Korean, um, a- as well as their allies. The, the, the U.S. wasn't there alone. They had allies. In fact, uh, I was talking to S.T. Campitelli the other day, and he told me, and I never knew this, but there were Australian troops in Korea at that yeah. time as well. Yeah, um, my mother's New Zealander, and so her dad was like a prisoner of war in Korea or something. Wow. Yeah, so there was New Kiwis there as well. Yeah, so it's it's really interesting talking to people from different parts of the world and getting that perspective of these mm. historical events because, you know, I, first of all, I was I loved history when I was in high school. It was my favorite subject, but these things weren't talked about, you know, that, that there were troops from other parts, uh, allied countries that were supporting the U S in, in these conflicts and the the Vietnam conflict as well. Mm. Uh, So you, you get a, a bit of a sanitized version of history until you start really going outside the influence of your own culture and talking to other people and finding out, or, you know, I mean, I suppose I could have, read some some articles of of history from different countries but talking to people firsthand and getting that perspective is uh well for one it's more interesting oh definitely yeah yeah the um i've got a lot of like japanese friends that went to university in australia and um in august like they're all very like quiet and stuff. And I was like, you know, we're out for coffee. I'm like, Oh, what's going on? And it's like, you know, Oh, today's the day. Like the, um, our enemies bombed us. Oh, talking about the Nagasaki Hiroshima. bombings. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and it was, you, you know, like, Oh, it was, you know, it was very cruel and unjust. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> like getting their perspective. Like they were just like peacefully minding their own business when they were just like rudely bombed. I was like, okay. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's an interesting take. Yeah. And yeah, there, there are two sides to that. Um, I am sympathetic to both sides of the argument. I have my own opinion and I, I kind of keep that to myself because I don't want to, to, uh, you know, make anybody feel like I don't respect their opinion because the, yeah. you know, that that's their culture. I, I, yeah. I recently saw a, uh, a movie about a survivor who was at, in both cities at the time <laughs> of both bombings. Yeah. yeah. I think it was on Netflix. Did you see that movie? No, but I've heard uh, about it. Because they were like three days apart, weren't yes. they? Yeah. And, and he, caught, he caught a train between the two cities. Oh. Right. You know, and to see it from his perspective, well... Uh, you know, it was, it was absolutely horrific experience for him to go through that. Um, but you look at it from 
the U.S.'s perspective, or or let's say more more precisely, the U.S. president's perspective, was was he going to send potentially? I think it was three million was the estimated casualties if there was a land Senate. invasion. And yeah, the Japanese would have fought to the end. Yes. Well, they 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 had said that it, it wasn't a a it wasn't a um a speculation that they had proven that in yeah. the Philippines and mm. you know the island warfare that they had leading up to the invasion of Japan so yeah. it would have been a bloodbath and it would have taken a lot longer it cost a lot more money and more lives had it not been um you know had Truman not made the decision he did mm. But, like, the crazy thing is, like, I always find it fascinating that, like, the U.S. was, like, flying planes over, like, and just dropping leaflets, like, guys, yeah. we've got a really big weapon. Please surrender. Like, we don't want to use this. They'd, but um, they had no yeah. other choice. <clears throat> yeah. The, uh, the, the emperor and the military, they weren't going to let the Japanese surrender. And No. Well, that's some, one of the crazy things, like, because there was like the um, what is it called? Like the rape of Nanjing in China. Because the Japanese were fighting with China yeah, as well. Yeah. Oh, they were. And like they were trying to commit genocide on on the Chinese. Yeah, the Japanese were well, so brutal to the Chinese at that time. Like, there's this crazy story. Like, um, because the the Chinese were like surrendering, and they're like the Japanese are like, okay, they're surrendering. They're obviously not honorable. We can do whatever the fuck we yeah. want to them. But there was this Nazi in like China and like he was like he set up like a safe haven for like all the women fleeing. And like there's this Nazi like protecting like all these Chinese civilians. And he went back to Germany, he's like, guys, we've got to get away from these Japanese. They're nuts. And they're like, They're our allies, you need to be quiet. Okay. Yeah. Wow. And so you just it's just insanity. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, another thing that was uh, a little bit I think understated uh about the about those times is well one thing we know is how advanced the uh nazi technology was there the nazi war machine was unstoppable but what is a little bit overshadowed is how advanced the japanese war machine was at that time too their navy was second to none and their airplanes were so I've seen a little. Yeah, they were they were way more advanced than the U.S. airplanes. Yeah, I've seen a little about their um airplanes. Yeah, like the the only thing I can remember is like they had like a very sort of like solid um steel plate behind like the the pilot seat. So when they're getting like shot from behind, like the pilot's fine, or some crazy thing like that. Well, the the yeah. engines they were way faster, way more maneuverable. Uh, their the airframe was way sturdier. For some reason, their technology was so far advanced over what the the U.S. had. Yeah, it's um. We're going back to like World War Two. Yeah, I think we got a little bit off track. We were talking about <laughs> Cold War Two point We ended up talking about World yeah. War Two, which is okay. So I can bring this back. Okay, so um, I'm. Do you play video games at all? I used to. Used to play yeah, video games, okay, not so, so much anymore though. There's this one. I don't really play the series, but it's um 
Black Ops, like Call, Call of Duty Black okay, Ops. Call they put Duty. out this trailer recently, and um, do you know who? Uh, I think his name's Yuri Bezmenov. No, I'm not not familiar. He's with that, that Soviet spy who defected, and he sort of gave like a warning to like America, and he's like, "Look, this plan they're doing is going to take decades to come to fruition, but it's it's you know, it's going to work. So you guys have got to watch out." And it's sort of like that, um, how you sort of like break a nation. Like you don't fight them from without, you get them sort of fighting from within. Mm-hmm. And this like how you destabilize it. And this game actually used his like talk in their trailer. And it's sort of thinking like, guys, this is happening now. Like all this conflict that's going on in the United States and all that. And like the greater Western world as well. So these, these game devs are like, okay, like, they're sort of giving a nod to like what's going on but this one's set in like 1984 so sort of right around that period but um yeah it's sort of interesting like you go and watch this guy's talk and you put it in relation to what's happening now in like the west with like again i know you don't want to get too political but it's sort of like everything that's going on with like people being very divided and like it's, it seems to be boiling over and like you can take this guy's speech and just like lay it over what's happening now and be like, okay, yeah, this is happening. Yeah, it seems to me that if if anybody can look at the, the circumstances going on in a given country, and I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to say a specific country, but if you look at from an objective perspective, from a 30,000 foot view, you look down and see what's going on. You can see there's manipulation on both sides. Uh, You know, whether you're a conservative or liberal, you can see there's manipulation going on on both sides. And if you look at really who benefits from the division of its people, don't, don't focus on your differing opinions between one side or the other. Look at, who's causing that strife and that's where you focus your your real attention and people don't think about that though they're so caught up in their own am i right i i want to be right i have to be right and they don't look at you know that person on the other side of my opinion who's disagreeing with me right now is a fellow human being for one thing Mm. and you know, it could be a neighbor, could be a relative. Shoot, I, I've got relatives that won't talk to each other anymore because of differing opinions, political opinions. Yeah, yeah. That's that's the the I guess the the worst tragedy of this whole thing is that relatives will not talk to each other, and it really makes you realize if we go back as far as the Civil War, the American Civil War, how were brothers fighting against brothers? face to face, mm. you know, and, and, and so divided. Well, it's easy to see that now. Um, you know, I, just, I still don't think it's right, but it, it is easy to see how, you know, two differing opinions could be so polarizing that you, yeah. you could end up hating your sibling because of it. Yeah. That's, that's the real tragedy we'll in this whole thing. I think. Like I'm just old enough to remember like my parents would have like a party and they'd be like, no religion or politics. Mm-hmm. Just don't talk about it. Don't talk about it. 
Like we're having a ball. We're here to. We're all here to have a good time. Don't bring up stuff like that. You know that that's usually my policy for this podcast is no politics, no religion, because that they're so polarizing. But uh, the the things we're talking about are are not really, we're not taking a side. We're kind of Mm. analyzing the big picture. We're looking at it from the 30,000 foot view Mm. and uh, just realizing that there's two sides to each story, man. You just got to understand you're not going to agree on everything find a, a common ground that you can agree on and start there. So but would you say that that's what the cold war was about? No. Uh, like, no, it wasn't about like, you know, and ideology. I, I answered that pretty quickly because I have put some yeah. thought into that. What is the differing um, sides of the, the Soviet union and the U S and why were they so well, and it wasn't just the U S you had, the UK, Australia was involved, uh, and other countries, but it was more than just an ideological disagreement. The um, the Soviet Union was, in in much the same way that China is starting to ramp up their expansionism, the Soviet Union was literally trying to their doctrine, the communist doctrine was to spread communism to every point in the world so whether they yeah whether they did that through conquering other nations or subterfuge and espionage that was their doctrine and the the western allies their only hope to stave off that kind of aggressive expansionism was to you know basically come together and put a, um, put a stop to that expansionism through treaties, through the threat of nuclear annihilation, through embargoes. Um, yeah, that, that's, that was more than just an ideological difference. That was, that was a threat being made similar to what the Nazi regime was doing in world war two, but a, a threat being made to the, freedom of our of our world yeah well, so, okay um again just being here i just spent like a year working with an australian who was also like a communist and like i was just in close proximity with this guy and like the more and more you hear them talk like it, it gets sort of concerning hmm. so like i've always tried to like stay out of politics <laughs> like i hate I hate the phrase "everything is political." Like they will, like I think people will politicize anything and everything they can. I don't think everything is political. I think anything can be made political. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. So. Oh yeah, I, I totally agree because yeah, no, not everything is political, but if you allow yourself to be drawn in, and you take that bait, yeah, you can you can be dragged into a political disagreement very easily. Yeah. Yeah. And like, it, it sort of comes out in like very strange ways. Like, like I have a friend here and she's, um, she expressed interest in this guy and he was like flat out, like, no, I'm not interested at all. And I'm like, why? Like you're like, she's, you know, you'd be batting above man. (laughs) She's pretty good. Mm -hmm. 
and when I sort of found out more about him, it was sort of like, okay, so she's Vietnamese Canadian. And so why are there a lot of Vietnamese people in Canada? They were fleeing Vietnam because of the communists. Mm -hmm. So any Vietnamese Canadian, their family is obviously going to be sort of like pro communism, anti communism. And so he was like, that's not a viable option for me in my worldview. So I'm just going to step away from that. And it was sort of like, like that's a, that's a weird way for like I said, it's a set of beliefs to like influence your life. Yeah. The only other uh, type of dogma that's going to make somebody or, you know, basically force somebody to make that kind of a decision is the religion. Mm. You know, people will like have not won anything to do with a different religion or even a different sect of the religion. Yeah. Because the, their, their family will disown them or mm. they, they won't be uh, privy to the, uh, you know, all the benefits of being in, in their religion. If they were to marry outside the religion, it's really weird, man. Oh yeah. And, uh, you know, I didn't know that about, um, the communist, uh, you know, some of many of the communist members, uh, that there were that, uh, against the, um, the commingling, I guess, of, of their belief system with, uh, well, I, I think for this guy, it was just like, okay, so her family has fled communism mm -hmm. and I'm a communist. So it's just, it wouldn't work out very yeah. well. So, you know, again, that's sort of sad, but you know, I guess best in the long run. True. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, true. like, but, mm, I mean, how, how far down this sort of rabbit hole do you want to go uh, like let's let's take it back a couple of notches to a little bit lighter cool. topic and talk about nuclear cool. war or something and talk, talk about the, <laughs> the post-apocalypse the aftermath of a nuclear war how about that we get into okay, cool. uh, let's let's bring it back to your book actually and talk about a little bit about the post-apocalyptic writing guide okay cool. it, yeah I, that that is a great book i mean that's actually if anybody's interested in getting into dipping their toe into the genre as a reader or a writer. I think that is the great, is a great place to start. Uh, what made you write that book? Um, well, like I wrote one book, I, I made the very stupid mistake of like writing the magnum opus first, like the big, I pumped like a lot of time and money and effort into it. And like, a lot of artwork. Like I paid this artist in Russia. I had like artists all over the world, graphic designers and stuff. And like it just for the printing, cause it's all like pictures and you know, color and stuff. Like it's, it's quite expensive. And so like first time author an expensive book sales weren't doing that well. And I was like, okay, interesting. Like people love the book, but just, yeah, it wasn't selling. So I was like, okay, I'll just do, you know, backtrack and, you know, start again. And I sort of looked around and I couldn't, there was like, there was one genre guide for like the post-apocalyptic genre. And like I bought it and he sort of boiled down to like, there's two types of post-apocalyptic stories. One is where they stay in a location and the other one is where they're going to find something. And I was like, that's just stupid. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I'll, I'll do it. And so I just started researching and looking into all the different, you know, types of scenarios and 
yeah, I sort of came up with that. And it was actually interesting. I was like, okay, try and define the genre. Like, can you do it? You mean if you wanted to go find a book on post-apocalyptic worlds, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, so yeah. like, yeah, so if if you try and define the genre, it's quite difficult because like, okay, so the best like the best analogy I could come up with is that it's sort of similar to like the Western. Yeah, yeah, perfect. So like, like, so what is a Western to you? Oh, barren landscape for one. Um, yeah. Pretty much mob rules. Where if you go into a town, um, the strongest faction within the town has all the privileges, all the power, and anybody who's not part of that group is outcast or subjugate. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then you got the lone wanderer who's out, you know, defying the odds, trying to make his own way. And sometimes he'll do good. Sometimes he will do not so good. Okay. That's kind of the Western um, ideology okay. for me. Okay. Is it set in a place? No, not, not a particular place. I mean, it's the, the wasteland. Okay. So it could be set in like a jungle? Uh, like Africa? You typically wouldn't see a Western in, no, in, even though parts of the West are, uh, you have, you know, heavily forested areas, if you get out to California area, it's usually in the desert, a yep. desert uh, landscape. Okay. And so what about like a time? Could you have a Western set in like the 12th century? No, because you'd have uh, different technology. You'd have armor yeah. and, and swords. You wouldn't have firearms. Yes. Yeah, so so it's, it's this weird combination of like a time and a place. Right. And you sort of go beyond that and it sort of starts to frazzle a bit. So like you can have like a post-apocalyptic story. Obviously it's got to be set after apocalyptic event, but then like there has to be a, like a, an end time as well. Cause otherwise Europe is still post-apocalyptic from like the black death. <laughs> well, you don't even have to go that far back. It's, it's post-apocalyptic from world war two still. Yeah, yeah. World War II so, like, devastated got, Europe. And so, like, the best I could sort of come up with is, like, it has to be, like, it's a time where people still define themselves in relation to the event itself. Mm-hmm. So, like, but once you sort of start looking forward, that's when you sort of start leaving that post-apocalyptic period. Right, and what's the, what's the uh, demarcation line where you have no longer post-apocalyptic and now it's a new era or a new dawn. Well, when you start yet, like just that, when you start looking ahead, like, you know, okay, I'm not, I'm no longer defined by the nuclear bombs. I'm now defined by like, you know, I'm building a spaceship to try and go somewhere else. Or like we're building society or like now my biggest concern is the neighbor who is getting belligerent. It's more like, you know, that's always been my biggest problem with like the fallout series. It's been like 200 years plus since the nuclear war. There's still bodies laying around all over the place that died during the war. And people still talk about the bombs. Like, do you talk about like the civil war? Well, the war of independence in like your everyday life. Not with average people. No, I mean, there are occasions where you, you know, two people will have a conversation about that, but you don't see 
the average person walk up to the street and start talking about that. Yeah, it'd be like if you're walking down the street and you see like a, the dead body of like a soldier, sorry, a red, red coat. Mm-hmm. You're like, well, why is that still here? <laughs> like, <laughs> someone going to clean that up? But yeah, so like you've got to stop defining yourself in relation to the event. But yeah, it's it's one of those sort of nebulous time and place genres. Yeah, but it's fun to explore those those worlds too. And that I'll that's why the yeah. genre is so popular and, and growing in popularity. Yeah, yeah, I love it. So th- well, like I- the book um the book lays out uh, I think it's like 10 or 12 chapters, isn't it? It's pretty extensive. Um <clears throat> I sort of broke it down into like trying to define it. And then there's like di- different scenarios and like groups of scenarios, like environmental, social, political, just straight up conflict, reality. Cause like you can get like very different sort of very different scenarios. And I sort of like one is a group them all together. So like you, just define you have causes, right? Different, different scenarios that could cause the, yep. the, um, the doomsday. We'll just yep. call it that. Uh, and then you had the, uh, different sections about the aftermath and, and yep. cultures. And I mean, it was pretty yep. comprehensive. It is pretty comprehensive. Mm. Um, so I did like the actual event themselves. Cause you got to think like a nuclear war is going to be different to like a zombie apocalypse. Right. Like what happens afterwards is going to be obviously, but then like, you know, what life would be like afterwards. Like I'm just looking at like the table of contents now. It's like, you know, banditry combat food and water medicine sort of like just different things you would have to sort of deal with in that sort of like new sort of world but um yeah it was it was quite interesting and like people would pop up and be like have you thought of this and they'd like put that in it's it's equally applicable to games as it is to books or movies right yes yeah it's just because my main focus is like stories. Like I've, I've done a little bit of work for video game companies. Um, there's a post-apocalyptic video game set in Australia that should be coming out sometime end of next year that I sort of worked on for a bit. So I'm pretty excited about that. But um, yeah, anything with a story, this will sort of, this will, this will help with that. And I, um, like just part of it, like I just, I'm very interested in the genre. So I've read a lot. In it. And so you sort of notice these sort of like archetypal characters as well. And sort of like, you know, you these reoccurring themes and individuals that sort of start popping up. And so, so I made notes of all those as well. So, you know, people say they don't like cliches, but they certainly like tropes. So, you know, got to use them where you can. You, you do little surveys on Twitter. Yes. So yep. is, is that like an extension of your what you developed in that book okay so the book itself is just a guide for anyone who wants to write in the genre so yeah so i use i go back and refer to whatever now and again so yeah if you're writing a story definitely check it out but that the the poll thing on twitter is um yeah i was drunk one night and i was like hey guys just choose my next story and i put up like a bunch of polls and it just spiraled out of control. And so I had like this crazy sort of like 
multi-apocalyptic event that I had to fit together. And I was like, okay, well, you guys chose that, so you might as well choose the characters who are going to be the protagonists. So it's there's going to be 10 short stories with like an 11th to sort of round it off. And like, and everyone on Twitter has just been choosing which protagonist I sort of write for. And it's been really interesting because like, I didn't get to choose the scenarios. And it, it was very interesting because I had like an environmental collapse, uh, Lovecraftian, but then also like a supernatural paranormal end of the world. And I sort of had to like crush all these together and figure out a way to have them all working. And then I didn't get to choose the protagonist either. So I'm forced to sort of work sort of outside of my own control. So it's, it's, it's been interesting sort of making everything sort of fit together, but it's been good. It's turned out to be a really interesting setting. That's a, a unique way to, to approach a project like that. But in a way it, it kind of helps you because it sets your parameters for you to where mm. you, you've got these, these set guidelines that you have to kind of walk within, but anything outside of that or, or anything within that structure is free game is, is open to your own interpretation. And, and yeah. so in a way it's almost like having a boss that says, Here, here's your parameters. You got to stick within this and you are a disciplined enough writer to respect those, those parameters. Mm. I'm curious though. I don't know if you have published any of those. Well, Originally, I just wrote like the one short story and I published that. It's out there. I, th I'm, I think it's still out. I may have taken it down because like I just gave it away for free and people were really enjoying it. And they're like, they wanted more. They wanted to know about the world. And so I was like, okay, I'll just write a series. And that's where I went from like one short story to 10. And that's why it sort of spiraled out of control again. It's like, this is what I mean. I got, I got drunk once. And now I'm doing this months-long exercise. Seems like you've been, but, you've uh, been working on it for close to a year, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, like, when I got this job teaching English, it was like, yeah, come to Taiwan, teach English. It's easy. It's great. You'll have a blast. I get here, and it's just an absolute clusterfuck. Like, we have just teachers fleeing the country in the middle of the night and just, like, just dropping everything and running, and, like, the whole – it just goes pear-shaped. And like, I'm the only one here and like, I'm doing all these extra classes. And like I have no free time. Like I came here with like, okay, I can learn Chinese. You know, I can put some time into that. No, I do not have free time. Any sort of free time I have, I want to put into this and like my own stuff. So like I'm on holiday at the moment, but I'm writing, I'm doing my own thing. So, yeah. How developed is yeah, this this is. I'm sorry, man. I'm getting a little bit off topic. We'll come back to this post-apocalyptic stuff. But how developed is Taiwan as a country? Taiwan is amazing. Okay, because yeah, like um, some some of the photos you've shared of areas of the downtown in, in the city you live in is like, man, that yeah. is is that really part of the city, or is that just like an abandoned section of the city? No, like. Yeah, that's what sort of threw me because, like, you walk down the street and there'll be, like, you know, just big screen TVs just, you know, doing ads and stuff. People are just driving around on scooters. But, again, like, the weather here, it's very humid, so a lot of people don't pay attention to the external, like, 
for the, the, the buildings. And if the building's really old, like, you know, a bit of dirt will be on the top, a seed will be up there, and the next thing there's a tree. And they just leave the tree there. So it's just, just these trees growing out of buildings. So you kind of have a... And it's, it's just a, it seems like you have a meeting of the, the two worlds. Like you've got the advanced technology, but then you've got the dilapidated abandoned sections that are kind of just next to each other, intertwined almost. Yeah. It's like, it's not as extreme as Japan. Like, cause Japan will have like, you know, skyscraper, skyscraper, like 500 year old temple skyscraper. And it's just very sort of jarring, but here, because like, okay, so I'm going to get this wrong. It's sort of like, I think the Spanish, the Portuguese, the Chinese, the Japanese have all sort of like laid claim to Taiwan. And so like, there's a lot of like a lot of different influences here. Like you look around in the buildings and they don't make any sense. Like you get sort of like very sort of like, there's these buildings like Greco Roman pillars, this very sort of like Western, like statues with like angels and wings at the top and stuff. But then there's the more like traditional, like East Asian architecture as well. It's uh interesting. Yeah, it's it's definitely interesting to see it. And and again, then there's the the trees growing out of everything. <laughs> yeah, you have to share more pictures, man, because it um, I, you know, I've seen the pictures that you shared, and it's interesting to see uh, just sections of the city that are, you know, it almost looks like they're uninhabitable. But you say that there's people living in there still too. Oh yeah, well like land size of like australia compared to taiwan like we're just we're massive but we have the same population it's like around 23 24 million oh that's crazy and like yeah. They're, yeah. they're all just crammed in here and like they're not even in because taiwan's got a lot of mountains like hundreds of mountains so like mountain climbing is like a big thing here like trekking up the mountains and stuff it's so like people live to the coasts and so they're not even using most of the island so the population density here is insane. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's just overgrown buildings everywhere. And I, like, I, I love it. Mm-hmm. Like I, I just walk, I walk to work and was like, Oh, this is, this is awesome. <laughs> it's like living in a modern day post-apocalyptic city, huh? Yeah. Well, like the, the, I actually have one photo. I'll, I'll send it to you after this. It's of like, I just went and like snapped a photo. Cause like there was this tree growing out of the top of the building. And my, and my girlfriend was like, you know, why are you taking a photo of that? I was like, it looks cool. And like, I didn't even notice that like a traffic light had been knocked over and like emergency crews were like trying to repair it. And so like, I'm this foreigner taking a photo of like this tree and there's all these workers like looking at like this crashed car and like a pole that's been knocked over. I'm like, I hadn't even seen it. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that tree's cool. Yeah. Those things are cool. Cause you don't see them in everyday life. No, and that's why no. it's interesting to, to take those pictures and share them. Hmm. Definitely. Yeah. But um, what about you, man? Like you, you've got your various, you know, fields going on. What's going on in your end of the world? Well, I'm not sure if you know what I do for a living. I'm a web designer, graphic designer. Nice. And uh, do photography on the side, which is. That's, that's the main thing I sort of, you know, see. Yeah. Yeah. I share, I share quite a few photos. I haven't been out shooting for several months. Because uh, we go through periods here in the desert, man, it gets really hot. It gets upwards of 100 plus for in the daytime for about four months straight. 
Okay, odd question. Is it a dry heat? Yes. Yes. Yeah, I'm from Australia, so that's dry heat as well. I come to Taiwan and it's just huge. That's worse, in my opinion. Yeah, and I, I walk through it. I'm like, it feels like you're walking through soup. Yeah. And it's just like, oh. I will take that dry oven heat. I call it, like, if you've ever stood close to an oven when the door is open, and you yep. get that blast of heat and it just, you feel like it sucks the moisture right out of your skin. That's exactly yep. what it feels like. So, I mean, you know what I'm talking about, but a lot of people that have yep. never experienced that. That's how I, ex- mm. that's how I describe it to them. But yeah, it's, it's yep. exactly like that for four months straight. And uh, with, with various breaks in the, in that kind of weather, you know, some once in a while we'll get some rains, some, they call them monsoons where you yep. get these, amazing lightning storms just looks so incredible um but uh yeah you know i i live in las vegas which or i live on the outskirts of las vegas in a town called henderson um Mm -hmm. which is butts right up to las vegas so you know if you're driving through henderson you'll end up in las vegas and you won't even know it it's all one big city um with a population of about three over 3 million within this, this whole metropolitan area. Uh, It's not really heavily densely populated uh, like you would imagine, but that's because it's so spread out. You're talking probably from one side of the, the metropolitan area to the others, probably 30 plus miles. So it's a huge, huge area. Yeah, okay. But on the outskirts of that, then you've got a mountain or a, a whole string of mountains where it snows up in there. Uh, on the other side, you got just barren desert where, you, you know, lizards and snakes and rabbits and ground squirrels lives. Uh, mm. You know, and that's where I like to spend my time. I like to go out there and hang out with the, the wildlife in the yeah. desert, um, you know, take pictures or I like to go find the, the off beaten areas within the city that are kind of abandoned and, you know, mm. not many people go there. Uh, so there, there are part, believe it or not, you know, we're in one of the most luxurious cities in the world. In my opinion, you know, you've got multi-billion dollar, uh, architecture up and down the strip. And not even five minutes away from that, you could stand and look out at the city and be standing in a, in a, a zone of homelessness. Uh, I mean, literally people living in cardboard boxes under a freeway. And you can, you can see within a five minute walk, these multi-million dollar um, buildings that people are spending loads of money at. Somehow I ended up watching a documentary about Las Vegas and apparently there's like a big underground there as well. Like a lot of, a lot of people live underground. Yeah. There's a huge tunnel system under for, um, for, um, because the city used to get flooded when it would rain. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You, you could be driving along and before you know it, you're in four foot of water yeah. because yeah. the way the city, the city's built in this big bowl. It, it, literally it's surrounded by mountains and it, it goes into 
like this big, this big uh, bowl. So the city would get flooded. And so they built these massive tunnel systems under the city for, you know, to get that water to drain out. Yeah. But it wasn't long before those sections of the city got populated by uh, homeless people, drug addicts, you know, people with, um, that just want to escape from society. Yeah. yeah. So they go down there and they live in pure darkness. It's a strange, strange existence, but yeah, that's, that goes on right here. Mm. Well, like my hometown back in Australia, like sort of short history lesson when the British were bringing prisoners to Australia. So the name of your hometown? Oh, I'm from Brisbane. It's on the East coast. Uh, Is that the Southern or the. It's, It's right in the middle. Yeah, so they they'll bring in prisoners over to like um penal labor and all that, and um the British were just arresting anyone and everyone and using them as labor. But they got to the colonies and they were like, oh god, we've got like pretend criminals and the real criminals, and the real criminals are causing problems. So they needed a place to send the real criminals. So they sailed up north. And they set up like a new colony, which was ended up becoming like my hometown. So it was like a prison within a prison. But they built it on like this this area that floods all the time. It's so like my hometown. If there's like a big heavy rain, the the walls will just wash down from the mountains and just flood for like weeks. The last big one was in I think 2011, and it was like probably a good couple of weeks that the like regions of the entire city were just underwater. Like, yeah. Makes you wonder why, why would people build a city right there? You know, like, you know, hundreds of years ago, you're not, you know, that's what I mean. That's what, why, why would they build a city there and then keep coming back? You know, this place is going to get flooded out for a couple of weeks and it happens at, at least at least once every two or three years, if not every year, you know, and then maybe it goes to maybe when they originally built it, there was like a drought and they had a dry spell for several years and then the city was built up and then boom, it gets flooded and they're like, wow, we got to rebuild. But like, is, is the, are the floods in Vegas like bad? Well, they used to be. Yeah. It's not anymore because of this, the uh, tunnel systems, but yeah, you could be driving along. Okay. I have a friend, uh, he's not a close friend. He's actually the brother of one of my wife's really good friends. Um, this, uh, he was a postal worker. He drove around, drove around the, the, um, the uh, mail, mail vans. And <laughs> the, he, it made national news because he was driving through the streets of Las Vegas during a, a storm and, and a big torrential storm. And he thought he could get across the street and his, um, his mail mail truck broke down in the middle of the street and the water was still rising. <laughs> yeah. So he had to yeah. abandon his vehicle with all the mail in it. And there was a picture somebody took and it, it made national news. So yeah, the flooding here at one time was deadly. In fact, they still mm-hmm. have signs up that, uh, that warn you and they have these funny little sayings 
yeah, like our whole country has got that. Like, just if it's if it's flooded, don't risk. That's it. it. Yeah, something like that. Some little te- you know, little catchphrases like that. Yeah, that's but that's like, Vegas, man. You know, we live in the desert, literally in the desert. And um, I mean, it, it. You would think by coming here, you would think that it's been terraformed because we've got palm trees lining a lot of the major roadways. It looks looks like a almost like a tropical city but it's in the middle of the desert. It's weird. But I, I, you know, I love the desert, man. The desert to me is, is absolutely gorgeous. I would love to be there and, you know, but it's the heat is unbearable almost. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I'm not a big fan of the desert. Like I had to drive back from, uh, Melbourne to Brisbane. It was like a 19 hour drive straight. Oof, that's a long one. Man. And, and like, I'm just in the middle of the desert and like someone had built a Stargate, like just out in the desert. Wow. And I was on the side of the road in the middle of nowhere. And I stopped and I was like, what the, just, <laughs> so it kept going. Just, yeah. People do the weirdest things, man. A Stargate in the middle of the desert because, yeah. because the, like you said, the, um, I, you know, I've never been to Australia, but I'd love to go, but I, I know a little bit about it, but you've got a big city, densely populated, and then another city and nothing, nothing in between for, for hours. Yeah. Well, like East coast is sort of like the most populated. Then you got a bit down sort of like the Southeast. And then there's a one big city over on the West coast, a little in between, but yeah the easiest way i sort of try and give like scout to people is like if you're out in the desert you've some people have got driveways that are two hours long <laughs> what that's just the driveway no yeah that that's different <laughs> yeah that's something different yeah. than i was gonna say i can kind of relate because the next from if you leave vegas proper you know the the metropolitan area if you leave vegas in in any direction the the next big city is um You've got Barstow, which is a city, but it's not a big city. And that's four hours away. If you go south, an hour and a half drive is the next town. And that's just a little small dinky town. But then the next city from there is Phoenix, Mesa. That's a that's a big metropolitan area. That's about four hours away. And then if you're going to the east, there's a couple little spots where you could pull off for gas or something maybe get a bite to eat but the next big city is almost three hours away and that's saint george and then to the north there really is nothing going up north so i i kind of can relate to that if you go you know hour you'd have to drive hours in any direction to get to another city in this part of the the country so it's kind of interesting though. It's, it, you know, it, it gives you that feeling of being in the post-apocalyptic world when you're out away from the city, you know, in the middle of the desert like that. You're like, man, no civilization like, out here. Don't you have that wasteland weekend event? Yeah, that's, <clears throat> that's in California. Uh, that's about a three or four hour drive from here. Uh, okay. I think it's near, uh, it's on the way from here to Bakersfield. Um, but I have not been to that yet. I just, uh, you know, 
it's a bunch of people out there having a great time in the desert and you know <laughs> living it up in the post-apocalyptic uh genre but it's a bunch of people yeah. and that's the thing that i don't dig i don't like being around a lot of people yeah that's fair enough, yeah <laughs> I've thought about going to it. In fact, uh, do you remember Mark Cordori? Cord- Cordori? The, the costume. Yes. The, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I think he left, tw- he dropped off of Twitter completely, and he's only doing Instagram now, but he came out here a few times to that. Nice. From, uh, he's from yeah. um, England, somewhere in England. Yeah, um, the... The women on the cover of the post-apocalyptic writing guide, they're the demolition dolls. They're a group that go to Wasteland Weekend. Oh, right on. How, how did you get that? You just connect with them on the internet? Yeah, I just hit them up. I'm like, hey, do you want to be on the cover of this book? Here here it is. And they're like, yes. So, yeah, that was cool. Right, very cool. Uh, you know, I just got a couple more questions, and then we could wrap it up because um, it's get kind of late here. Uh, yeah, sure. No worries, man. Um going back to the post-apocalyptic fiction um when when we first exchanged uh emails and i did that interview with you for the for the website um you had mentioned that uh the road warrior was your favorite i mean sorry the road was your favorite book at that time is that Mm -hmm. still true oh i'd have to say yes like it's either gonna be that or Mad Max Fury Road, but like everyone loves that. I mean, like the the book, the book. Oh, yeah, the book, the book. Yes, definitely the book. Like, it's just it's like three hundred pages of just bleak poetry. That's how I always say it. it's just amazing, and like it ends on like a good note. Like there's this faint glimmer of hope at the end. Yes, and that's I think that's sort of key. Like I was talking to Evan about that, and there's this one movie, and like. I forget what it's called, like desolation or something like they're trapped in a bunker in New York after like a nuclear bomb. Mm -hmm. And there's just no glimmer of hope at the end. Like it just keeps going down, down, down. She gets out and everything's ruined and drops down again. You're like, Oh, I just feel drained. Oh, that's called the divide. The divide. Yes. That one. Yes. Yes. That, that movie is like, there, there is no hope at the end of that movie. It's just, yeah, that movie's that's just soul-crushing. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, soul crushing. Um, the the one movie that that I saw. Well, we, we went from books to talking about movies, but uh, you re- remember the movie on the beach? Uh the submarine crew. Yeah. Yes, yes. And you know that's that's like the worst case scenario, and these people know that every human is going to die, and the final scene is uh the guy and his girl sitting on the beach sharing a glass of wine they they know their time is up they know their time's limited but to me that scene was so full of life and so encouraging to me that it just it was like okay that's that's not a depressing movie yeah that's that, that's just the the what I took away from that final scene was like, these people know it's going to end half of, or probably 90% of the population of the world is just going rampant, trying to destroy everything. Oh, I I didn't even realize that took place in Australia. Majority of the movie took place in Australia because that was the only safe haven left. 
I'm trying to remember, like, I think Brian Brown, like, he went on the racetrack and drove a car, like, up a ramp, and, like, that's just how he wanted to go out. And there was, like, another soldier, like, they sort of docked outside his home, and he sort of escaped and sort of, like, ran and just, he like, he wanted to die at home. Yeah. And, like, the crew were trying to get him back, and he's like, nah, I'm fine, guys. Right. Just, you know, go, go on your way. Right. Like, did, did the submarine crew, like, did they survive or, like? They did not survive. They went back to, oh, no, see, they had all gotten exposed to, to oh, radiation okay. while they were on their trek up, up yeah, north. Okay. So they, they were yeah. all going to die. They just wanted to die out at sea. Yeah. Okay, Except okay. for the captain. The captain stayed behind and spent his final moments with the girl that he fell in love with. But see, to me, it was that scene that was like, that was so, it doesn't matter how much time you have left, man. It doesn't matter that it's the end of humanity. It's what you do with that time you have left that's so important. And those people lived it to its fullest. That's why it was a positive message in my mind. See, there's been a few movies like that where it's like sort of pre-apocalyptic where like the end is coming, but you focus on people who aren't going to make it. Like there's one that's set in Australia, where like a comet hit Earth. I think it hit like America. And like the blast wave was like traveling around the globe. So it's like Australia had like, warning you know, this is just giant blast wave that's coming and like they've got like 11 hours or something and so people are just going crazy and like it's the story like this guy who like helps this little girl then goes back to his girlfriend but like everyone's pretty much doomed but um yeah and there was one with um william defoe as well where, like the ozone like the atmosphere was just going to vaporize into space or something and that was typical william defoe just madness you know, those are my favorite kind of movie, not the movies where civilization ends. I, I just like to see the aftermath part of it, mm. the, str the human struggle to survive and to thrive, you know, come back from yeah. the brink. I think those are, that's, that's one of the reasons why I love the genre. Mm. Um, I was talking to Evan um, from The Waste, uh, yeah. and he said that the reason he likes those kind of movies is that it, always gives him or he he loves the the idea of having hope that the every, mm. everybody in the apocalypse you've got people that are trying to survive people that are trying to conquer other people but you know you, you've got that element of people that are just that they have that element of hope but uh and his favorite movie is uh is um I, i'm not i don't mean to talk too much about another guy's podcast but he he <laughs> you know he always says that his favorite movie is the book of eli which is relevant because when you and i did that interview you said that your favorite character of any book or movie was red ridge oh yeah yeah that guy's awesome <laughs> i forgot i wrote that yeah <laughs> Do you want to explain who he is and what that movie's about? Oh, yeah. Okay, so Red Ridge is like the right-hand man of like the town's sort of like despotic leader. He's sort of like the big strong guy. He sort of goes and gets things done. He works for like the charismatic leader. And he's not the main character. He's like the side character. But he, he gets like this really sort of like fleshed out story and he gets his own sort of like character arc where like he's obviously sent to like first attempt to recruit the main character, then he gets rejected, then he's sent to hunt him down. 
and he's sort of realizing like, okay, this guy's like a good guy. And, but there's also something more here. Like he's, she's trying to shoot him and he's missing. And he's like, I, I don't miss like what, what's going on. And he's sort of like, he's hunting him down. Like he, he likes this girl. He's going about trying to get her in like a less than healthy way. But like, he does actually sort of genuinely like her. And in a sort of like his like dying moments, he sort of like lets her go. And even sort of she realizes like she's sort of watching him die and like he's sort of like coming to peace with the world. And like he's because there's like the very sort of heavy like religious overtones and stuff like you get the impression like he finds some sort of like redemption and like she's there to witness it. And yeah, I just thought it was like a really cool, like just, he's just the side character. Like, well, why is he getting all this like attention? <laughs> I was like, that's, that's amazing. Yeah. I like the way you put that, that he got, that he, uh, you know, he, he was a bad guy, you know, there was no mm. doubt about it. He was the henchman to the main bad guy or he yeah. was the, the lead henchman to the main bad guy. Mm. Um, but he also had a really strict uh, moral compass you know, I mean, he, whatever fit within his r- rules was okay to do, but anything outside of that was off limits. He wouldn't go beyond those, those boundaries, which is, uh, you know, you, you've always got to have a little bit of respect for somebody who, who has that kind of discipline, you know, that kind of strict code, like, you know, he, he He'll, he'll murder anybody for for the right reasons, but he won't murder the wrong person for the wrong reasons. <laughs> yeah. yeah. See, see, like, one of the scenes that sort of got me is, like, the girl he likes is going to get water, and, like, he steps in front of her to try and, like, tease her. And, like, you think, like, oh, he's, like, he's, like, the thug. He's going to try and, like, you know, force his way on her. But he sees she's upset, and he's, like, oh, oh, this hasn't worked how I thought it would. And he just like sheepishly like walks away. And so he's not like villainous. He's sort of just like not all there or like he's not understanding how it works. So yeah, I don't know. I, I just really like the character. That's cool. Very flawed, yeah. but good character. Yeah. Uh, the, the whole movie itself is a great movie. And uh, mm. the book of Eli, anybody hasn't seen it, highly recommend go see it. Um, definitely you know it's it's kind of like the road warrior without wheels all right so i guess last question on the uh, post-apocalyptic fiction is sure what do you consider what would you consider the worst case end of world scenario oh um well i can get kind of crazy like i'll just bring up the list here like what do you do if there's like actual judgment day where God's like, yep, now nah, you're done. <laughs> like if it's actually God, you're not really going to get out of that one. I mean, the whole u- universe could end. We can't do much against that. Um, I think the ones that sort of like ground level, I think probably nuclear war is going to be the worst one only because we, we, ne- we rarely actually see it play out like it really would. Like, I think War Day is probably the best depiction of what I've seen. That's this novel, really, really good. 
but um yeah it's toned down a lot in like movies and books because it's just so bad the radiation oh yeah yeah the 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 one movie the one movie that i could think of that really you know it it uh, holds back no punches it's it's not even a post apocalyptic movie it's just a, a historical accurate movie is chernobyl and actually it's a mini series oh that one came out recently yeah. i haven't seen that yeah it is oh man i mean that's what it would be like all over the world uh yeah. people dying a slow painful agonizing death because of their yeah. exposure to radiation there and there would be places where you couldn't even get near or you would end up that but way but again like it's so much like carry on that like you don't even think about like you go through, like again i wrote this in the book but like if you drink water from downstream you get a radiation like i'm not in the blast zone but like you've just drank water that came from the blast zone you're dead like you, you pick up items and they've absorbed radiation or like someone has eaten like food from the radiation and they've like, you know, pooped it out somewhere that's radioactive. And you're like, you, you just get this in you and like, you're done. Like you, you may be able to survive like a little bit, but there's no real, like, like at a certain point, there's nothing you can do. And so it's just, it's just very, very bad. And even then, like you set off enough nukes and like the, the world temperature goes up. Oh, because of the fallout, like, the fallout dust covers the, the atmosphere. So the sunlight doesn't get in the, the nuclear well, winter. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. yeah you can have like nuclear wind, winter, which would make things like would cover the world with like you know, a, a couple of years. Maybe it, it depends. We, have, we obviously haven't had one. That would destroy crops, which means food's obviously going to be hard to come by. Which is how cannibalism starts. Well, sadly, they've actually had like plenty of cases to study cannibalism. Like I think it was China and India. And yeah, it's it's not pretty when that's the sort of thing starts happening. But um, sadly, I can go into that as well. But I don't. That's that's a bit heavy. You research some weird things when you're a writer. So yeah. You know, we could go into that in another episode. Uh, you <laughs> another, know, if, yeah. if, as as long as we can bring the conversation back to a place of positivity. You know, positivity. The yeah. um, okay. the whole goal of this is to this podcast for me is to be a, an outlet um, mm. to do something that can entertain as well as educate and also to get people to think outside of the, the norms. Mm. So it's, you know, I, I don't mind going to the dark places as long as we don't end it there. <laughs> we'll talk. As long as you go back to the light. Yeah. We yeah. got to go, yeah. we got to bring it back to like the, um, you know, that I, I agree with you though. That is the worst case scenario as far as the, the end of the world is for mm. a nuclear all out nuclear annihilation mad mutually assured destruction yeah um i think that's the the worst case for the end of the world scenario mm, mm. because it's not going to end in a a blink of an eye like a, a meteor no. strike you know a massive meteor strike that would end all life in a heartbeat you know there would be no suffering there would be no long-term um starvation or things like that you know it would just be over with 
Yeah. Uh, but the, uh, the, the nuclear winter would cause mass starvation. Uh, there's just so many elements to that scenario that make that, uh, you know, the worst case. Mm. Um, so good call on that one, man. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. Um, but you did, you also mentioned, um, the Lovecraftian, um, element. What that's, a, that's just like going into the weird, the paranormal almost, yeah. right? Well, you think like paranormal is like ghosts and stuff. Lovecraft is like monsters from beyond time and space mm -hmm. that just don't even recognize your existence. So how does that play it's, out? I, I, you know, that that's beyond my realm of, of it's, uh, understanding. It's actually quite difficult because traditionally, like if you see like Cthulhu, like this elder God, who's like dead and dreaming, like you see him and your mind just breaks you're like what the mm -hmm. and you're you're just insane <laughs> and so it's actually quite difficult writing a world where they have come to the planet but they're still survivors because again it's like radiation like if you just look at this thing you're insane and you're, you're just gone so yeah it's, it's been quite an interesting challenge trying to figure out how people would manage to um avoid just going insane like there was that movie recently with Sandra Bullock about like the invisible monsters. Like if you look at one, you just kill yourself or something. It's called bird box. Bird box. Yeah. So like, how do you survive that? Do you go to blind, you know, blind yourself in some fashion and you're running around blindfold, which is obviously difficult. So, you know, thinking of ways that people would, you know, invent to, surviving that sort of world has been an interesting challenge but yeah it's been fun but also kind of like disgusting because you know yeah. you go insane trying to figure out ways to prevent people from looking at the thing to go insane right oh yeah yeah totally wow. yeah. yeah that's interesting yeah. well I, I can't wait to read do you have a title for that project uh i'm currently working with like the bastard's curse okay yeah so i i don't know how but somehow it ended up that like only bad people survived. <laughs> like if you were a good person, like you just died straight away in the end of the world. And I had, it's such a dumb idea now that I actually think about it. Like all the protagonists are unlikable in some fashion. <laughs> like, it's like game of Thrones just amped up. I, I I've never seen game of Thrones. Never seen a single episode uh, of it. Yeah. I, I, I didn't watch it either, but you know, everyone's sort of like no one's the good guy everyone's oh, morally okay. gray okay. it's just that yeah lots of dying so yeah hopefully i'll get it done soon so i can move on to another project yeah i'd like to read it too mm. and i'm sure there's a few hundred other people that would like to read it uh, at least anybody that's participated in one of the surveys oh yeah yeah, yeah or yeah, polls yeah, that you put out on twitter mm. but yeah so that, that's the current project and hopefully I'll get it done and out by the end of the year. So good deal. Is there, besides that project, is there anything else you're working on? Oh uh, yes. Um, there's still like the sequel to days too dark and like a side series set in that universe. There is, 
I'm working with a friend. We're going to do like a shared universe where we both write into it and just sort of like just put out novel sort of sci-fi, again, post-apocalyptic. That's sort of going to be like your sort of hard and fast releases. And um, think like Conan-esque pulp fiction sort of stuff. Hmm. So, and finally, there's like this dystopian series that I'm going to work on. It's not really my area. Like I sort of stay more post-apocalyptic, but yeah. I thought I'd just try out dystopian and see what it's like. I got a bit sick of all like the very cliched dystopias. That's great. Uh, and in dystopian um, worlds is there's a, there's a difference, but there's a, there's a misconception that dystopia and post-apocalyptic fiction are the same one and the same. And that's just not the, the case, right? For me, the difference is that a dystopia has to have like a society that has gone terribly wrong. I think like, post-apocalyptic fiction like society has fallen apart like the social contract is gone your neighbor is not someone that you can reasonably trust anymore but in dystopian fiction the society is still there it's just a really bad one and so to me that's the main sort of difference cool so a lot of people use uh, blade runner as kind of a a reference for dystopia that, that's the one with the um the robot cyborg yeah robots replicants yeah replicants yeah 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 everyone in that world seems kind of miserable especially the robots uh arthur walker he's also a member of the post-apocalyptic community uh he he does a, a whole series on dystopian fiction and uh, his books are pretty good anybody that's um that's interested in dystopian fiction. That's that's a good series to check out. Ouroboros Saga. That's it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I grabbed all his books as well. So definitely. Uh, so if uh, if anybody wanted to get a hold of you, talk to you about your projects, or you know, just contribute something in some way to to your existence, what uh, how how would people get in touch with you? Uh, definitely on Twitter. I'm more so on there these days. It's just um, at JJ Shirty. This has been a absolute pleasure talking to you, man. I appreciate you spending so much time with me. No worries, man. It's been great. I look forward to talking to you again sometime in the future. And until then, man, hope things work out for you. Hope you have a good time. <laughs> Cheers, mate. Have a good one. <laughs> Bye. Talk to you later. Dead Hand Radio is a podcast about the Cold War, its history, and the effects it had on our culture, technology, and the future of our world. My goal is to examine these and other topics, to learn, to educate, to entertain, and exchange ideas with those interested. So join me, and together we'll explore a fascinating period of history and examine some incredible advancements in weapons, technology, science, art, and culture and discuss how all of it relates to the future of our world. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on this program, drop me an email or visit deadhandradio.com. You can also find me on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. I'm Andrew Hall, and this is Dead Hand Radio. Thanks for listening.